one of the awesome privileges and burdens that any leader in the Christian faith will have is that oftentimes we get to counsel others. And, you know, oftentimes counsel others in their suffering or their difficulty, in their trials and their hurts. And that's an awesome privilege that we as Christians are burden bearers because Christ was our burden bearer. And one of the things that often comes up when I'm counseling somebody is either they have eliminated God from the equation or they know God is there, but maybe when they think of the word God, he's just a little bit higher version of us. He's just higher up the scale than us. He's still beyond our imagination. I mean, he's still within our imagination. And, you know, the goal of the Christian life is to be like Christ. But let's just think about what if the opposite were true, where Christ was actually like us, where he is just a little bit better version of us. What if his love was like our love? What if his kindness was like our kindness? What if his forgiveness was as reluctant as our forgiveness? What if he responded to the sin of others or sin in the way that we respond to other people's sin? What if his patience was as weak as our patience? If that were the case, it would be a very scary thought and we would have plenty of reason to be insecure in the Christian life. We would walk with a lot of fear that we could probably lose God's love. Because that's how weak our love is. But I think if we're honest, for many of us, even though we know what the Bible says about who God is, the thoughts or the heart attitudes don't reflect that. And actually, we just think God is a little bit higher version of us. Similar to us. Of course, better, higher up the scale than us but still within the realm of our imagination. How many of us relate to God as someone who's better than us, but not yet completely different? Who is higher than us, but his thoughts are actually similar in, to, in our, to our thoughts. His love is our, like our love. I mean, I see it all the time. We may say we believe in the love of God, but when the rubber meets the road, we have a hard time believing that his love is actually that different from our love that he would actually forgive us at a certain point because we wouldn't forgive someone at that point. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever God is rebuking his people, he says something like this. You know, you thought I was like you. You thought I was like you. No. I'm holy. I'm God. I'm infinitely above and beyond you. I transcend you. Oftentimes when we think of God being holy or someone being holy, maybe like the stereotype of this guy is holier than thou, we just sort of think of moral purity. He's very religious, he's very ethical, he's very pure. And that is part of the definition of holiness. But when, when Isaiah 6 that God says God is holy, 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 it's not actually talking about simply his purity, but his transcendence. God is not just a little bit higher up the scale than us. In every single way, he breaks the scale. He's in a class of his own. He's in a different league. He is holy. He is set apart. He is different than us. 
When we say God is holy, we are saying he is transcendent, he is set apart, he breaks the scale. And so, for example, God's wisdom is holy, and so in Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I am transcendent, I am majestic, I'm divine, I'm greatness. I'm not just a little bit higher up the scale than you. I break the scale. There's an infinite, infinite qualitative difference between us and God. And so holiness is not just one of his many attributes. It's the backdrop to all of his attributes. Him being holy is why he is God. What makes God, God is not that he's powerful, not that he's wise, not that he's loving, but his, his power is holy power. His love is holy love. His wisdom is holy wisdom. It transcends, it breaks the scale. And as soon as you put the word holy with God, it means he is off the scale, his love is off the scale, his power is off the scale. And when we lose sight of that, we're in trouble. Today, I want to look at one way which God is holy, and that's his holy patience, his perfect patience. And this will be like a little mini-series, a two-part series, where today we'll talk about God's perfect patience. Next week, we'll talk about our imperfect patience. But we got to start with who God is. That's where we always have to start. And my, my supernatural goal for this sermon is that we would come at the end of the sermon and we would just be like, thank God that you are not like us. Because if we were God in heaven, we would have grown impatient with people like us long ago. Our anger would rise quickly every time we're offended or even annoyed. Our frustration would boil over. We would constantly snap at us. We would be quick to judge with fire. But his patience is not like ours. And we see that throughout the Bible, but I think we see it most clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so just to give a little bit of context for 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy. He's probably in his late 30s or early 40s. And the whole epistle is to charge Timothy with the task of leading the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches to reject false teachers who are preaching a false gospel. And so Paul here in this section is going to share his testimony to show that I am a true teacher of the gospel appointed by Jesus Christ, and I have personally been touched by the grace of God, and my gospel is true. So he's setting himself up as a testimony to the truth of the gospel as well as the power of the gospel. And in verse 3 to 10, he goes through the false teaching of these false teachers who are wrongly using the law. They misunderstood its purpose. They thought that the law was gospel and that you don't really need grace. And so he goes over a proper understanding of the law, which is to understand sin, to understand that we need a Savior. That's the point of the law. It's not to save ourselves, it's to show us that we fall short. And that we need a Savior. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, he's going to show the gospel at work in him, a sinner. 
And so let's read there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. This is God's word. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, starting in verse 12, Paul has been appointed as an apostle, but notice, I, I just like how he puts this word in. Notice the word he uses at the end of verse 12, he has been appointed to service. He's a servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he just reminds us, especially as leaders, that as leaders, we are appointed to service. And we don't really care for that title today, to be a servant, but that's how a lot of the writers of the, gospel, uh, the epistles, like James, that's how they introduce themselves. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, I'm a servant of my half-brother, my Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ, that's who I am. That's the privilege we get to have. We don't think of being a servant as a privilege until we see who we're serving. And it's a privilege to serve greatness. That's our honor. And when you think of someone who is appointed, you usually wonder, like, why was that person appointed? Why did that person get that job? How has this person received this position? What are his qualifications? When we were first starting Savior, there was a point, uh, a season, where I was looking for a full-time, non-pastoral job as we were transitioning to this church plant, and I applied to maybe 100 different places. And again and again, when I go to like these little hiring fairs, I would, I, would, I would put forward my resume, which I'm so proud of, right? This is who I am. And they would look at me like, sorry, your background is not what we're looking for. You know, nine years as a youth pastor is not exactly like Harvard material, okay? And I was under a bit of a delusion that it'll be easy to appoint me. But Paul is under no such delusion. Prior to his appointment, here's what he says in verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. This is not the resume we would think of if we had a hiring committee for a leader or a pastor of the church. Hey, Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was a really good blasphemer an amazing persecutor and an insolent opponent. Let's invite this guy to come preach for us. But Paul here is opening up his soul. He's in wonder, this whole section, he's in wonder that I was appointed. The gospel has been entrusted to me. He knows who he is. He knows his past. He knows what he's done. And Paul, again and again, he has no problem sharing his testimony 
his salvation story throughout Scripture. He shares it in Acts 22 and Acts 26. He repeats it in Galatians, Philippians 3, and here again in 1 Timothy 1. And there was this always, always this sense of awe and disbelief that Jesus saved him. That's how he even introduced himself in, chapter, in the very first verse of this book. Paul, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And so let me do a quick background study on the person of Paul, who was previously, his name was Saul, in case you're not familiar with that. He was Saul, but after he became a Christian, he became, and became known as Paul. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, he says, I myself, he's talking about his past, was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." And so Paul's talking about his life prior to his conversion, where he went from place to place. Just imagine the scene, if you saw this guy gathering up not just men, but men and women to lock them up. A blasphemer was someone who openly spoke against God, who slanders God or speaks evil of him. And not only was he a blasphemer, his mission, which he was so committed to was to make everyone else blaspheme Christ. In Acts chapter 7 uh, to Acts chapter 8, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we had the first death or the martyr of Christianity. His name was Stephen. And who was leading the crowd? Saul. In verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, after Stephen's speech, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen... He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered all throughout, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It says he was wreaking havoc on the church, threatening, binding, slaughtering, aggressive, violent, evil, persecution. When it says the word insolent, that's like a weird word to me. We don't use that type of language, but that's like the worst type of behavior you can imagine Someone who in his behavior is so insulting, so violent, and so humiliating. Acts chapter two, uh, 22 verse 4 says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering 
to prison both men and women. To their death. That's who Paul was when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a mass murderer, violent, persecuting, Christ-rejecting, sinner in the worst possible way. This wasn't some Sunday school Christian kid who wanted to grow up to be an apostle. He was committed to monotheism and would murder anyone who had to do with this so-called Christian trinity. And this is the author of so many of the epistles that we love. And how does he become the greatest preacher in the known world? Verse 14, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. At the time, Paul was acting in ignorance and unbelief. He was a Jew, and he says, yes, I was guilty. I wasn't aware of the truth. And his ignorance and unbelief, they are still culpable, but they are not unforgivable. He is guilty. And on the cross, Jesus, if you remember, he looked out at the crowd that screamed for his blood, a crowd that wanted him dead, a crowd that had unjustly put him on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They don't fully understand. The sin is theirs. It's hideous, but they don't fully understand what they are doing. And Jesus warned of men like Saul ahead of time. They think they're serving God. He thought, Saul thought he was upholding God's cause, but he didn't know who the Father was. He didn't know Jesus. In John chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, Jesus warns the disciples. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when when their hour comes, you you may remember that I told them to you. So Jesus warned his disciples about these guys, guys like Saul. And so in Acts chapter 9, we see that it says Saul is breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of Christ, and he gets approval from the high priest to go and persecute these men and women who belong to the way, who are Christians. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 3 through 5, we see the beginning of his conversion where it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Saul, he's on his way to kill Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. He sees this blinding light. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, I don't know who you are. He didn't know Jesus. But Jesus, in his mercy brought Saul to the floor, to his knees. He made him blind, physically blind, so that he can't see. He is absolutely helpless and hopeless. He's on the floor in the dust. His eyes have been closed, and he has no idea if they're ever going to be open again. And he's doing nothing unless someone comes and takes him by the hand. And so God sends this godly man, a disciple, a Christian named Ananias, And Ananias goes to Saul, he finds Saul praying, blind, helpless, hopeless, 
And I can only imagine, we don't, actually, we actually don't have to imagine what was going through Ananias' mind when he first heard that I should go to, I should go to Saul? He tells it in Acts 9.13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Ananias probably knows, isn't this the guy that led the charge to stone Stephen? He's done so much evil. Really, him? I, I can't understand this at all. And so, obediently, though, he goes up to Saul, who's blind, and just... How did he say this? I don't know. But he says, you, 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 you are the chosen instrument of God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You. Paul woke up that day saying, I'm going to kill Christians. And he had his eyes closed, but his spiritual eyes were opened by the grace and mercy of Christ. Then it says he rose and was baptized. He knew he deserved death. Instead, he received mercy and grace. We use those words often. Mercy, I think just the helpful way I've always distinguished those is mercy is when we don't receive something that we do deserve which is punishment, when we don't receive something we do deserve. Grace is when we do receive something we never deserved, which is God's love, his kindness, his forgiveness, his adoption. Was there anyone more unlikely than this guy? Any more more smug or prideful, more arrogant, How unlikely. We would think that God will only save people like us. God says here, I saved the most unlikely. And I imagine that Saul was converted to Paul. You know, how would he look back? Like, man, I I was there. I killed Stephen. Stephen's death must have been on his mind. He saw Stephen faithfully die, full of love, just like Jesus did. And I have to imagine the death of Stephen must have weighed on Paul when he was saved. But God answered Stephen's prayer. He forgave Saul. Isn't that the last thing he prayed? Stephen was praying for Paul even as he was dying, and God answered that prayer and gave Paul mercy. Can God really forgive Saul? Not just forgive him, but appoint him? Not just elect him, but enable him? Not just forgive him, but adopt him? I'm not going to just forgive you, Saul. I'm going to make you the greatest Christian or the preacher the world has ever seen. I'm going to make you who thought you were so strong. I'm going to make you so weak. I'm going to give you certain weaknesses and thorns in the flesh, things that make you call out to me. I'm going to take away your pride so that when people see Saul, who becomes Paul, they know it's God. It's all grace. It's all mercy. Paul never forgot what he was saved from. He never forgot the sinful life he had been saved from. He remembers a pit from which God saved him. And so he says, God's grace overflowed for me. 
The word there is huper or hyper or super or exceeding or abundant or abounding. And with that grace, there's a package that comes with it, faith and love. Faith which replaces unbelief and love which replaces violent aggression, all started by a work of grace. For by grace we have been saved through faith. The faith of God, or faith in God is a gift, not that of ourselves, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Your salvation was a gift. It was the grace of God. Your faith is a gift. And we got to stop here for a second. We can't just move on from this, where we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in our entitled age, in our entitled age, more often than not, we think, I deserve better. There's a tone and there's an underlying assumption that when we're grumbling and we're complaining, that God, I'm entitled. And especially for those who feel very religious, it's very easy for us to say, God, I've been faithful. Shouldn't I be first? Shouldn't I be at the front of the line? And we mumble ourselves. In my worst moments, I mumble to myself, God, I don't deserve this. But that phrase also shows up when I'm at my very best. We look at our lives. We look at our salvation. We look at where we stand today and where we should be, and we acknowledge that we're doing better than we deserve, it's all by God's grace. God, I don't deserve this. As Christians, we don't go through life assuming we, assuming we deserve first place. We don't always need to make sure we get what's ours, feeling like we're constantly owed something, always disappointed, as sinners, we are deserving of last place, but we realize we deserve nothing but God's wrath. And we're thankful because it's all by God's amazing grace, by the grace of God. As much as I struggle in my life, as much as it feels hard, by the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of God, I am where I am. It's easy for us to pay lip service to the concept of grace. And we forget that that amazing grace is something we have received and we still receive on a daily basis. And so more often than not, the daily prayer of our hearts should be, God, this is better than I deserve. If you guys know John Noon, he's the author of the very popular Christian song, classic Amazing Grace, former slave trader, he actually wrote his own epitaph, like the, the little summary that goes on his gravestone. He wrote it while he was alive. And this is what he wrote on for his gravestone. John Noon Clerk, once an infidel and libertine, an enemy of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. 
Here was a man who was deeply aware of his own sin, but he was also not defined by it. Christ was merciful to me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, Christianity is all about the basics. We never, ever move beyond the basics. And what is maybe the most basic truth of Christianity? It's summarized for us in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, during this time in church history, it seems that there were certain creeds or statements that had, you know, traveled throughout the church where people knew, like, the basic truths of Christianity, and this seemed to be one of them. This is the first of five trustworthy statements that we see in the pastoral epistles. And we've all heard this before, but it's amazing when you think of who's writing this. Not only, I mean, Paul had his... He was a murderer, violent, insolent, but he was also formerly a Pharisee. A religious leader, a Hebrew of the Hebrews in Philippians 3, who had been circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of the Benjam- tribe of, uh, part of the tribe of Benjamin, under the tutelage of Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest teachers at that time. He lived a life according to the law. And as a Pharisee, he would never have associated with sinners. Pharisees are to have nothing to do with sinners and tax collectors. That's why they constantly attack Jesus. Jesus is a friend of sinners? We're supposed to stay away from these people. And here is Paul, this religious man, saying, I'm in the category of sinners. I'm not just in the category of sinners. I'm the foremost. I'm the head. I'm the front of the line. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. And we could look at this passage and be like, you know, uh, you know, I'm not that bad. But personally for me, by God's grace, when I was in college, he showed me that all my churchianity, all my morality, all my goodness, I was lost. Lost in goodness. And by his grace, he opened up my eyes to see that I'm a sinner. And maybe you've heard that a thousand times, but it's never actually clicked for you. But God didn't come into the world to save righteous people, people who are fine, people who are moral. He came to save sinners. To save. You know, I was at a church, like, just randomly, I stopped by this other church a couple months ago where I was, it was like a midweek event. And on, the, on there was this big banner where it says, you know, the advertisement of their current sermon series. And, in this, and on it, it says, you know, life is complicated. Jesus helps. I was honestly, like, if I'm just being, I was a little disgusted by that. Life is complicated. Jesus helps. Jesus came into the world to help sinners. No, he didn't come to help sinners. He came to save sinners. And the prerequisite for that is all you need to know is that you're helpless. 
It doesn't say he came into the world to help sinners. He's not some accessory or some add-on to your personal salvation. He's not someone who's just going to give you a pick-me-up. He is the one who saves. We're drowning in our sin. We're drowning. We're helpless. And all we could do by faith is cry out to God and say, save me. Self-righteous people, moral people who think they are upright and righteous don't turn to Christ. That's why morality without Christ is the most dangerous place to be. You don't think you need help. I don't need abundance, hyper grace. I just need a little bit of help. I'll be all right. I'm fine. And God says, fine, I'll leave you alone. And the second, the second you see the worst of sinners and you start to see them as more unlike you than like you, you are in a dangerous place. Why did God save Paul or Saul and turn him into Paul? Was it to keep him out of hell? Yes. To get him into heaven? Yes. To have him write the epistles? Yes. But here in this passage, God wanted to save the worst of the worst and make him the greatest Christian ever so that it would display his perfect patience. Verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's salvation is a display. It's like a billboard to the entire world that says, if God saved Paul, he could save you too. Don't you think he can transform you? For those who know themselves as sinners, who feel their sin is so deep, but they can never eradicate or wash away their sin, who feel they can't stand in God's presence, if God could do that for Saul, can I know his grace as well? Can I be changed too? And Jesus had this perfect patience on Paul. And he has perfect patience on us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has perfect patience for imperfect sinners. Let's flesh this idea out a little bit. Why has God not returned in his wrath? Why is he waiting? Why, is he not, why does he not immediately destroy unbelievers in their sin? Because in his patience, he has opened up a window of grace so that more kids can come into the kingdom. He wants more children. He wants more people to be saved. He wants more kingdom kids. 2 Peter 3, 8-9, the verse we read in the opening, says, Do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, there were members of the first century church who were becoming impatient. Like, why hasn't Jesus returned? Where is he? Why aren't our persecutors being judged? Why doesn't God fulfill his promises to us immediately? Why is he so slow? 
And Peter explains, it's because God cares for their souls. He wants to save them from the horrors of hell, which he knows better than us. He knows the extent of his own wrath. He wants people to be saved. He could destroy us at any moment, but he's chosen to wait. Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to reach repentance. He's not bothered by the passing of time like us, by the minutes and years and millenniums that have passed, if it means that more people will be saved for eternity. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you're just an unbeliever that's here or you're a churchgoer or you're really into just trying to be moral and you think this is just going to be an add-on to your life, but you've never actually submitted to the Lordship of Christ, the patience of God with you is an open door. It's a pathway home. It's a hand that's trying to beckon you to come to him. It's so that you would seek the Lord, return to him in repentance. God in his impatience is inviting you to repentance. And when you come to him, when you know I was in the mud and you have this turnaround in your mind and I want to follow Christ and you return to the Father, what you find is that the Father was waiting for you and he's running towards you. Luke chapter 15. You find a Savior who's always been knocking, Revelation 3.20. You find a God whose grace is overflowing. You find a God whose mercy is beyond your understanding, whose patience is perfect. It's not so that you could say, oh, I have time. I'll just follow God. I'll, you know, I'll wait for him. I'll follow him tomorrow. Let me go do this thing first with my life, and then later I'll follow you. You take advantage of God's patience. I'll repent of my sins tomorrow. No, Luke 19 says, today is the day of salvation Today is a day you recognize how patient God has been with you, and today is a day to repent. And if you keep waiting on tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, many souls have been lost to the temptation of tomorrow. Don't presume his kindness and patience with you will be forever. Tomorrow is the devil's favorite word. And for those of us who are children of God, Man, we just have to acknowledge that just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we're pretty rebellious children, aren't we? It's actually encouraging to me in a weird way as a parent that we have a perfect heavenly father, but he doesn't even have perfect kids. And for all of us who feel like we're so up and down, we have thrown away so much time, so many sermons, so many opportunities, so much kindness, we've sinned against them again and again, so grievously, for so long we struggle, you are not beyond the perfect patience of Jesus to reach you. His patience is not like yours. It's long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In our lack of imagination, we start to think God's patience is like ours. And if it was, he would have said, I'm done with you long ago. You've passed my limit. I've suffered enough for you. But his patience is not passing. It's not shallow. 
It surpasses our understanding. In his patience, God did not spare his own son. John 13, Jesus says right before he's going to die, he says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And as believers, we have to acknowledge that our story continues to be a story of divine patience and grace. We have wandered away from him, but God is so patient with us. We rebel against his son. We treasure sin. We forget the gospel. We forget our identity. We forget what he's done. But he wasn't just patient then. He is patient now. And daily we need his forgiveness and patience. And he will be patient with you tomorrow. Because as long as Christ is at the right hand of the Father, what he's doing up there is he's interceding on our behalf, pleading for us and saying, remember the cross. And it'll be like that forever. And one day he'll finish the work he has started in us, not just to elect us to salvation, but enable us to get to the finish line. For his children, his patience, like his love, endures forever. He's always kind. He gives present help. He's always ready to forgive, even through all our ups and downs. He tells us to come to him as a father, approach the throne of grace. He's gentle and he's sympathetic. Today and every day, thank God he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, Psalm 103, but according to his perfect patience and kindness. And so return to him. And rest. If you're a Christian, thank God he's not like us. Rejoice in this. If you've grown cold, you need to reach back and remember where you used to be. Remember your sinfulness and come back to the grace and patience of God with a thankful heart. If you're not a Christian, you need to rest assured that no matter what your sin might be, no matter how wretched it might appear to you, you are not beyond God's saving grace. And you need to turn away from your sins, repent, and trust in Him as your Savior and Lord. Church, we are flawed. We are blemished. We are sinful. We are weak. We stumble everywhere. We wander. We lose our patience. We fail to trust God. We fall short. But God is long-suffering. He has perfect patience. His mercy and grace abounds. He is our loving Heavenly Father. He is our Savior who came into the world to save sinners. I'll close with this verse, or this two sets of verses, and I'll close with this. Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. Just hear it, hear it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. In 1 Timothy 1.17, which I don't feel like I need to explain, we can just rejoice in this, make this the prayer, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we, we believe that we are your children, your sons and daughters, but at times we just feel so weak. Maybe beyond your love. That one day you'll look at us and say, you're done with us. I pray that in our moments of weakness, your spirit would testify to our hearts that we are your beloved children of God. That in our weakness, in our sin, that your spirit would remind us of your promises, that you hold us, you will never let go of us, that the work you started was not just to save us possibly one day if we do our job, but you will finish the work you began in us. And so God, may we not presume or take for granted your patience, but may it lead us to repentance. Help us not to fail at failing, but to turn to you and know that you are not condemning us but you delight in us that you love us and you are so ready to pour out your grace and forgiveness upon us not because we deserve it but because of the work of Christ on the cross and so we pray that through our church we would be a church that constantly remembers your patience we pray that that would lead to being patient with one another. We pray that we would believe your promises even when it comes to ourselves. Not just proclaim it to others, but when it comes to ourselves. That we are sinners saved by grace. And so I pray that that would motivate us out of grateful joy to want to pursue you on holiness to love you and to worship you through our lives. And so would you strengthen us in our inner being, in our hearts, would you transform us to know how perfectly patient you are with us? Would that give us peace? Would that give us love for you and love for others? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.